Our next scripture reading this morning comes from Mark's Gospel account, and this is uh, the story of Jesus calming the storm. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, may all that we do and say in this day be well and good in your sight. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So it was a beautiful Michigan summer Saturday afternoon, the perfect day to do what many Michiganders love to do in this great lake state of ours, and that was to be out boating on one of the thousands of lakes to choose from. This particular day, my family had chosen the waters of Lake St. Clair. Earlier that spring, my parents had decided to relocate our 19-foot speedboat from the crowded waters of Orchard Lake and purchased a slip at a marina in St. Clair Shores. So my mom and dad, my older brother Michael, my step-grandmother Dorothy, and I packed up for a whole day of boating. Towels, sunscreen, bathing suits, a picnic lunch, and soda pop. We spent our first few hours zipping around the lake, never too far from shore. My brother did some water skiing while I preferred tubing. Eventually, we made our way into the shallower waters of a quiet cove where we anchored on a sandbar. Here we had lunch, swam around the boat. I'm sure my dad probably did a little fishing, more than likely getting his line tangled up on something. (laughs) After a couple of hours, It was time to head home. With the sun still shining and the cloudless sky, we weighed anchor, packed up, and headed for the marina. But upon motoring out from the peacefulness of the secluded cove, we were in for a big surprise. The waters of Lake St. Clair had become turbulent with very large white-capped waves as far as the eye could see. And suddenly, being in the boat was no longer fun. My favorite place to sit in the boat was up in the open bow, but on this day, it was a bad choice of location. This part of the boat took the brunt of the crashing waves as they washed over us. If we found ourselves at the crest of a wave, the boat would then slam down into the waters below. I had a death grip on the metal rail beside me, And every time the boat fell from the crest of a wave, my elbow would also slam down on the hard fiberglass of the boat. 
I believe I was eight or nine years old at the time, and in all my years since, I am not sure that I have ever been more terrified than I was on that day. My mom, who was sitting next to me on the other side of the boat in the open bow, certainly wasn't helping my tear much, as she was expressing her own fears by yelling at my dad, who I remember to be standing over the shoulder of my brother, who was actually driving the boat, in spite of only being 14 or 15 years old himself. I also remember glancing back behind me and seeing our step-grandmother, Dorothy, who was sitting on the seats in the stern and seeing her laughing. <laughs> For the life of me, I couldn't figure out what she found to be so funny. I do know that the most stable place in a motorboat in turbulent waters is in the stern, so she was not experiencing the same sensations as my mom and I were in the bow. Now looking back, it's possible she was laughing out of nervousness, but with Dorothy, you just didn't know. Because it was also quite possible that she could have been laughing at our terror. We struggled a bit with Dorothy. She was a little bit of a difficult woman. I don't remember how long of a trip we had through the open waters. It, of course, felt like forever. I'm reminded of a portion of a line from the Gordon Lightfoot song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that says, when the waves turn the minutes to hours. I do remember the entrance of the marina finally coming into view and my terror being heightened all the more by the giant boulders that framed the shoreline to the entrance. It felt like we had so little control of our boat in those waves that I was now certain that we were going to crash into the rocks. I called my brother Michael this week and asked him about his recollections of this ill-fated boat trip, almost ill-fated boat trip. When I asked if he remembered the trip I was talking about at all, he laughed and said, of course, he could never forget it. And many of his memories were much the same as mine. What I didn't remember, but Michael shared with me, was that our dad was the one who had driven the boat out of the cove into the waves of the open lake and apparently had no idea how to navigate such waters. Michael had recently taken the power squadron course through the U.S. Coast Guard that allowed him, at the age of 13, to drive a boat. Thanks to his time spent in this class, he knew exactly what to do and how to drive in such conditions where my dad apparently did not. So Michael took over the helm for the majority of the ordeal. I do think my brother got a little puffed up in the retelling of this side of the story and making sure that I understood I was alive because of him. <laughs> Whatever. Finally, we made it safely into the still waters of the marina's channel, thanks to Michael, again, whatever. <laughs> we learned after the fact that Lake St. Clair is known to get very turbulent unexpectedly, and that a boat our size was not recommended in such waters. <laughs> so needless to say, we never took our boat back out onto Lake St. Clair again. The Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, though only 64 square miles to the 430 square miles of Lake St. Clair, 
apparently has a similar reputation for violent seeds to essentially come out of nowhere. I have had the great privilege of visiting Israel and taking a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, and I remember being surprised that I could see all points of the shoreline at all times. Surrounding the lake are the hills of Galilee, which reach nearly 1,400 feet above sea level, and the mountains of the Golan Heights, which was also called the Decapolis in Jesus' time, reach more than 2,500 feet. The lake's location makes it subject to sudden and violent storms. Such storms result from differences in temperatures between the seacoast and the mountains beyond. These heights are a source of cool, dry air. In contrast, directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical and warm, moist air. The large difference in heights surrounding land and sea causes large temperature and pressure changes. This results in strong winds dropping from the sea, funneling through the hills. Since the Sea of Galilee is small, these winds may descend directly into the center of the lake with violent results. When the contrasting air masses meet, a storm can arise quickly and without warning. Small boats caught out on the sea are in immediate danger. The Sea of Galilee is relatively shallow, just 200 feet at its greatest depth. A shallow lake is whipped up by wind more rapidly than deep water, where energy is more readily absorbed, thus another factor lending itself to the violent nature of the lake. One such storm in March of 1992 sent waves 10 feet high crashing into downtown Tiberias and caused significant damage to the city. Knowing such things about the Sea of Galilee and Israel and the makeup of its geography help us to gain a better understanding as to the potential violence of the storm that Mark describes here in his Gospel account, as well as its validity. We know that a handful of the disciples were fishermen, thus fairly well-versed in the art of boatmanship, many of them having been raised right there in the Galilee region. So their reaction in this story suggests a truly perilous situation. Like my own boat trip on Lake St. Clair, I believe a small part of me can relate to the fear and the terror of the disciples. And I can also relate to their frustration towards Jesus as well. So let us all put ourselves in the places of the disciples. To be caught up in a terrifying, chaotic, out-of-control moment. We are fearing for our very lives. We have no control over the boat we are in, which feels like the only thing keeping us alive with what little shred of safety and comfort it provides. And we have no control over the bashing of the waves, which threaten to capsize our safety net. We can hardly catch a breath as the waves and rain soak us through with the whipping of the wind. And there lies Jesus, curled up on some cushions in the stern, probably dreaming of rainbows and puppies while we struggle to keep ourselves alive. I am curious to know at this point in the story, as to how long the storm was raging before the disciples lost patience with Jesus and disturbed him from his peaceful slumber. How long did it take for them to decide it was finally time to wake him up? 
And I'm pretty sure, speaking for myself, of course, that I would have had the same reaction and said to Jesus the exact same words as the disciples did, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So let's hang out right here at this point in the story and wrestle with the reality of this situation. There is not an inch of my being that faults the disciples for their reactions or their words here. And I am willing to bet that many of us have been in this exact same place in our relationship with Jesus at some point in time. How many times have you asked yourself of God, do you not care? How many times have you wondered if God was even aware of your problems? Here are the disciples in a physical struggle for their lives against the powers of nature, only to look over at Jesus seemingly asleep on the job and ambivalent to their plight. How many times have you been in the midst of a storm in your own life only to feel the exact same way as the disciples, to feel like you're struggling alone, to feel like Jesus is completely asleep on the job and leaving you alone to your own devices? I know I have. Do you not care, God, that I am struggling? Can you not see, God, that I am drowning? Have you ever been in that place in your life where crying out to God for help feels as futile as shouting at the rain? I know I have. And in regards to some circumstances in my own life, my voice is becoming hoarse. So finally, Jesus wakes up. And again, I have questions. What was Jesus like to wake up? Was it like trying to wake up a teenager for school in the morning where you need the assistance of a jackhammer and a brass band? Or were you taking your life into your own hands by waking him up from a sound sleep? Kelly and I once traveled together to an out-of-town wedding, and I had to wake her up in the middle of the night. I must have stood outside her bedroom door for about five minutes, trying to get up enough courage to wake her up, not knowing if she was going to slug me or if I was going to give her a heart attack. Waking people up is a precarious business. I had a black eye for a week, by the way. <laughs> As Jesus wakes up, I am imagining him to be somewhat annoyed to be disturbed from his sleep, especially with the way in which he responds not only to the disciples, but to the weather as well. Before Jesus even got into the boat, he had been preaching and teaching for many, many hours, and we can imagine, in his humanity, he was probably exhausted. So the next question I have about this passage is this. Was Jesus' command of peace, be still, only intended for the storm and the seas? Or was it directed to the disciples as well? We know of many passages throughout the Old and New Testaments where God is directing his people, us, simply be still and know that he is God. To be still and to let him fight for us. 
to be still and to rest in him. We know what the effects of his words were on Mother Nature, for scripture tells us that the wind died down and it was completely calm. But the effects of his words on the disciples, I believe, would still take some time to fully sink into their hearts and minds. The next words Jesus says, I believe, can be read in one of two ways. First, I believe they can be read as an admonishment of sorts towards his disciples. You can almost hear a touch of frustration and exasperation and annoyance in his voice as he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? But then, there's the other way to read it. And that would be as a grace-filled, curious conversation starter. Guys, let's talk about this for a minute. Tell me what your fears are. What more do you need me to do in order for you to trust me and know that I've got you? Please, let me help. This is one of those places where scripture leaves us hanging. We want to know more. We want to be a part of this ensuing conversation, whether it be between Jesus and his disciples or between the disciples themselves. As Jesus is in the process of defining who he is and what he is all about, as he is in the process of proving his identity as God with us, he now needs to prove that he also has dominion over the weather. Yet still, the disciples scoff. We scoff. We struggle to believe. We struggle to understand. And yes, even in the midst of witnessing miracles, we still struggle to believe. So it's understandable when Jesus may get a little exasperated with us. But it is also very grace-filled as he is in the business of pursuing our hearts and minds all the days of our lives. Friends, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, what more do we need Jesus to do for us before we trust him fully and to know that he has got us? Finally, the passage concludes with this. The disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So here we do get a little glimpse into, into a potential conversation starter among the disciples, yet we still are left hanging as to what more was said among them. Yet, this is also a perfect conversation starter for all of us as well. Who is this man that we worship daily? What is this power that resides in him, power enough to command the weather? And do we believe it to be so? Do we believe that he is who he says he is? What does it take for us to be in awe of Jesus Christ and his nature, to bring us to the point of asking, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey? This, my friends, is God incarnate. This is God with us. As a congregation, we have been spending this time in Lent examining the life of Jesus and how he made the impossible possible. 
and how we, too, have similar powers. After all, Jesus himself told us that we would do even greater things than him. So because of this, I believe that we have the ability to step into the midst of a storm and call for peace. And no, of course, not the storms of nature, but the storms of our lives, and more importantly, the storms of others. We know for a fact that each and every one of us have been called to be peacemakers, and sometimes that may mean being storm chasers as well. Jesus simply said, peace, be still, and we have the same power. We can stand up to the storm and say the same. We can enter into the storms of others and lend our voices to the demand for peace as Jesus has called us to not ignore the storms of others. Simply because we may be seemingly unaffected by a situation does not give us a pass as Christians when a call for peace on behalf of humanity is necessary. Will we simply ignore the raging winds in others' lives, or will we be strong enough to endure with them? What does it mean for us to lend our voices and shout at the storms raging in the lives of our black brothers and sisters, storms that we as white Americans cannot possibly understand? What does it mean to call for peace against any power that seeks to divide or skew hatred among others? What does it mean to step into the storm of one's grief and sorrow and to shout at the storms of another's heartbreak? Our words have power. Our presence has power. Storms are going to happen. That is simply a matter of fact. Yet, when we focus on Jesus and trust that he will defeat the forces of chaos with his peace, and when we trust that he will calm the storms within, then we can understand the storms of life for what they are. Storms teach us trust. Storms teach us resilience. Storms teach us surrender. Storms teach. But of course, it takes time to get to this place of understanding with our faith. Because oftentimes, our faith feels as futile as shouting at the rain. We feel powerless against the forces that seek to swamp us and our lives, like a raging storm around us to which we can do nothing more than wait it out. But know that Jesus is there with you in the boat. He is using the storm to help us grow into a deeper understanding and trust in him. And rest assured, when the time is right, he will say, peace, be still. Why are you so afraid? I am right here. 